Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a senior lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm delighted to be talking today with Dr. Jenny Mathers. Jenny is a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University and is an expert in gender, security and war with a particular focus on Ukraine and Russia. Jenny is also co-editor of the book Heroism and Global Politics together with Veronica Kitchen, and I'll link to that really interesting book in the show notes. In light of International Women's Day on March 8th, I'm really pleased to have an opportunity to chat with Jenny today about these issues and themes of gender, how it intersects with security, heroism, the military and war. So thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today, Jenny. Great. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. So in times of crisis, and of course, war is a very particular type of crisis for an entire society, people often look for heroes to provide them with inspiration, to provide them with hope. So could you talk a bit about that relationship between society and heroes during times of war? Sure. So one of the things that Veronica and I really argued in the book and and discovered in our research is that war and other kinds of crises can be really moments when society defines itself, right? Moments when a society decides or a nation decides, this is who we are. And you can see that really when you look at how some of the the different combatant nations from the Second World War remember themselves as part of the Second World War. So in the United States, where I'm from, there's talk about the greatest generation. In Britain, where I live now, there's talk about, you know, the the spirit of Dunkirk and the spirit of the Blitz and, and so on. So you have this whole sort of collective heroism in a sense that, you know, we, we look to how we perform in these kinds of crises. So there's at that general sort of a level. But there's also, of course, the the specific moment when a society in a time of crisis or war identifies particular individuals as heroes. And of course, this is what really interests me and, and Veronica, because there are a multitude of possible heroes in any given conflict, in any given crisis, in, in everyday life, in fact. But it's who society chooses to pluck out and decide are their heroes. You know, who resonates with that society at that time and, and whose story also maybe resonates over a long period of time. So we still look back on them and we think of them as heroes, whereas others might, you know, have a brief moment of fame uh, and then, you know, we, we forget about them. So I think what we found is that heroes do certain things which are fairly predictable. Like, for example, they tend to display courage. They tend to often display a willingness for self-sacrifice or often are willing to risk their lives either in support of a a principle like freedom or perhaps to try and save the lives of of others. So you see certain sort of common features of, of heroes over time. But also what we found is that heroes are heroes for particular times and places and people. And so context is really important. And the kind of a person, a kind of a story that might resonate with one society at a particular moment might not resonate with them later or might not resonate with a different society. So, for example, the hero is often the person who embodies or exemplifies or demonstrates the values which which the society finds most impressive, most compelling, most important 
at that particular time. And it's that link with values and the way that we see ourselves and our heroes, right? So our heroes are our best selves. They're the ones that we think in, in that situation, we, we would hope that we would behave in that way, right? Be that self-sacrificing, be that courageous, put those principles really front and center. And so I think these are the reasons why heroes have this enduring, endearing ability to command respect that we continue to look for them. You know, we think of ourselves in the 21st century as, you know, modern people, but still this, this idea of heroes and heroism, I think it has a lot of purchase still, uh, particularly, as you say, in, in times of war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess in that sense, as you mentioned, because heroes are often people who we look up to, we want to exemplify, they can also be the ones to lead the societal direction. How are heroes involved in sometimes leading societal change? So, of course, heroes can be important forces for stability, but they can also be important forces for change. And so these moments of transition, these moments when societies define themselves, you know, these are the times when we kind of need those heroes to, to help us remind ourselves of, of what we stand for. So if you think about a society that was facing an enormous transition, one example is South Africa, making that transition from apartheid into a post-apartheid world, which would enable, you know, people of, of different races to, to gain positions of power and authority and have a have a say in how the society goes forward. And of course, Nelson Mandela was a crucial figure in that period. He was a crucial figure during apartheid as a symbol for people who were you know, oppressed by the system, who wanted to have someone to look up to, you know, because he was imprisoned, you know, he made that sacrifice. And what's interesting, one of the many things that's interesting about Mandela is the way that he helped to craft his heroic narrative from prison. So he worked with his colleagues in the ANC who were not in prison to get a message out, particular messages out about himself and his his principles and, and his vision for the future, which helped to hold that kind of anti-apartheid movement. It helped to give them that vision uh, and that inspiration. And then, of course, when he was freed, when he became the, the leader of South Africa, you know, again, uh, he's a sort of a symbol of, of what it's possible to be and how it's possible to be persecuted very harshly by the old regime and nevertheless look to the future and want to, to move forward. So I think heroes can be very, very important in showing us the way to make transitions, to undergo change, and you know, for society to be able to, to hold itself together at those times and, and to see a vision for the future. Yeah, that really makes sense. And I can see how Nelson Mandela particularly had a sort of a unifying effect on the quite fractured South African society. And in some ways, competing groups, whilst they might not have particularly liked each other, all sort of respected Nelson Mandela as a figure that they were willing to follow during that time. So as I mentioned at the top, you do look at this intersection between gender and the security domain. So what is that sort of relationship between gender and heroism? How do they intersect? It's a really good question and and really, really fascinating because it tells us a lot about how society thinks about a hero, especially in a a wartime setting. So you do have the acknowledgement of, of women's heroism, but it often is collective. In wartime. So the women who went into the munitions factories and kept everything going so that the war could, could still be fought, or the, the women who went to the front as nurses, or the women who went on the land to make sure that the agriculture could, could still be, you know, the land could be worked. So we tend to have this sort of collective 
image of, of women as heroes. But when it comes to individual heroes in wartime, very often they are men. And I think one of the reasons is that we think of as the main activity of war, which is the fighting. Of course, it's predominantly uh, undertaken by men. And it gives men more, shall we say, opportunities to demonstrate the kinds of features characteristics that we think of associate with as heroes. So courage and self-sacrifice and, and bravery under fire and, and all these kinds of things. These are the kinds of things that are really the bread and butter of, of life as a soldier in wartime. So it's not a surprise that there's this sort of tendency to, to link heroism at the individual level with individual soldiers. So what I find really interesting, though, is what happens when a society chooses a woman as a war hero? It doesn't happen that often. It does happen from time to time. It doesn't happen that often. And when it does, what I found in looking at various historical examples is there's a tendency to celebrate in the short term. And so in the short term, the woman is celebrated for doing something actually quite masculine. But as time goes on, that story tends to change about her. And she tends to be given all of these sort of feminine characteristics that become emphasized, sort of emphasizing the femininity. Whereas that doesn't happen, of course, with men, you know, because there's no distinction, there's no, there's no gap between being a hero in war and being masculine, being a man, because those those things tend to go together quite naturally, we think. But for a woman, you know, it's quite a bit different. So how can you be a feminine woman if you've been doing this very masculine thing in the war? So we, we try subsequently to knit these things together. So a really good example of this in relation to the war in Ukraine is during the earlier phase of the war, uh, which is before the, the mass invasion of the past year, during the sort of the, the part where the war was mostly concentrated in, in the Donbass region between 2014 and 2022, there was a woman in Ukraine who was very, very prominent and who was widely regarded as a war hero. And her name is Nadia Sepchenko. Today, she's totally vanished from public, you know, the public imagination. But at the time, she became very famous because she was actually a member of the armed forces in Ukraine as she asked to be sent to the front when the war broke out in 2014. The Ministry of Defense in, in Kiev was not comfortable with sending women to the front at that point. And so she took a leave of absence to, to volunteer. And while she was volunteering near the front lines, she was, according to her story, kidnapped by Russians, taken across the border, interrogated and put on trial and in prison. But what's important for her heroism is that her interrogation, her inter the video of her being interrogated in Russia, became a sort of overnight YouTube sensation in Ukraine and went viral. And you know, she was very defiant. She was very clear in her statements to the Russians, not only during her interrogation, but also in her trial subsequently, that, you know, she was a proud Ukrainian and the Russians had no business being there. And, you know, she really articulated those messages of defiance very clearly. And she also looked quite masculine. You know, she was, it was wartime. She had short hair. She was wearing, you know, camouflage clothes. She she was dressed for, for the activity. Her manner was very brusque. She used lots of swearing and so on. So it was quite masculine in her behavior. And, and yet, you know, Ukrainian society really took her to their hearts for, for a period. She became our Nadia and she became this kind of figure of hope and defiance that, you know, if she could defy the Russians, then, you know, Ukrainian society could defy the Russians as well. And uh, and so she was this amazing hero figure. And then she was released in a prisoner exchange and came back to, to Ukraine. And that's where the story really changes because she had a sort of a change of heart after she came back. And she started arguing that the Ukrainian government should negotiate with the, with the separatists in, in eastern Ukraine and that there should be a peaceful end to the conflict and they shouldn't just try and fight, fight until the last man. 
And that message did not resonate with Ukrainian society at all. And she was not only criticized for that, but she was criticized for behaving in a too masculine a way, which of course she was celebrated for, for that uh, earlier on. So for example, she would wear trousers, she didn't wear makeup, she kept her hair cut short, she swore, she smoked cigarettes. You know, she did all kinds of things which uh, were not conventionally regarded as feminine. And she was really, really criticized very heavily for it. But if you contrast her with the figure of President Zelensky, who is now regarded quite widely, not only in Ukraine, but but globally as, as a hero. And, you know, he has absolutely shown an enormous amount of courage, you know, personal courage. He's, he's risked his life by staying in Ukraine. He goes close to the front line on a regular basis. You know, he is clearly in danger, and yet he carries on. He's been the symbol of sort of uniting society against uh, the Russian aggression. And again, exemplifying the, the values of defiance and, and courage, but also, you know, democracy and freedom and, you know, liberal values and tolerance, all these kinds of things. And of course, there's no concern about him being too masculine. It's, uh, it's such an interesting contrast over such a short period of time in the same country. Yeah, that's right. And also that intersection between the context and an individual's behavior, like in some ways, Zelensky, I mean, clearly he does have those character traits, I think. And yet he only sort of rose to become perceived as a hero when Russia engaged in that full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Talking about the Ukrainian context, obviously Ukraine is now engaged in a full-scale war. So what is the role that Ukraine's women are playing in this war? Yeah, so I think it's fair to say that they're playing every kind of possible role that, that you could imagine uh, anybody playing in a war. So a large number of, of the, the women of Ukraine have actually fled the war either to other parts of Ukraine that are less at risk or abroad. And that is very much in the context, I think, of not just saving themselves, but saving children. And so the vast majority of the Ukrainian IDPs and refugees have been women accompanied by young children, huge exodus. And so, you know, in many ways, their contribution to the war is trying to preserve elements of Ukrainian society from the war for a post-war Ukraine. And so their job, which is enormously difficult, is to be separated from many of their family members to go to places that may be very unfamiliar to them and where they may not speak the language very well or at all, uh, may not know anything about the local setting or local customs or anything, and to make a home for themselves and their children while it, both integrating and ensuring that their children integrate enough to be able to function and survive, but at the same time, maintaining that link back home and keeping you know, the language alive in their families as their children learn to speak German or French or English or whatever, uh, making sure that they don't forget to speak Ukrainian, making sure that they don't forget about family members, making sure they don't forget about their heritage and their traditions. So it's a very, it, it's, it's a job that doesn't get a, a high profile when it comes to, you know, what the media covers in terms of the war, but it's a role which is incredibly important for the short term and the long term. And I think it needs to be mentioned and, and certainly kind of respected. So, so there's that, there's that aspect. Of course, many of the women of Ukraine have stayed behind and they do an enormous amount of work in terms of civil society work. So Ukrainian society has a very active civil society, I think, as we've discovered over the past year in particular, where people, they organize themselves, they're, they're, they spontaneously look around, they see what needs to be done, they come together and they, they do it. And so you have amazing efforts to keep societies running, uh, whether this is through professional jobs, you know, making sure that the electricity gets 
gets turned back on again as quickly as possible and the trains run on time, or whether it's about volunteering. So collecting together donations and giving them to IDPs or sending them to the front. Making camouflage nets has become something which communities of women uh, get together and do. And this is something which has been happening for years, but it's been particularly maybe a pressing issue uh, over the past year. Uh, and this is something that that any anybody almost can participate in. If you're not able to kind of go and fight or you don't want to, or you have caring responsibilities, you can still spare a few hours to go and work on making camouflage nets, which help to camouflage the soldiers and their camps, and it also helps to camouflage their weapons and so on. And of course, you have women who, who have joined the Ukrainian armed forces as well. And that's getting a fair amount of publicity. And it's an interesting situation because it's something that you often see happening in war. It doesn't happen in every war, but it happens in many wars that the military will open up its doors to women in some fashion or other. And there's usually restrictions. And sometimes they get relaxed as the time goes on. And sometimes they don't. In the case of Ukraine, as I mentioned earlier, in relation to the case of Nadia Savchenko, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense was quite reluctant to send women to the front in the early time after 2014. And there were not very many women who were in the Ukrainian armed forces in any case. But as that war continued, more and more women decided they, they wanted to come forward and they wanted to make a contribution in the military. And so gradually the restrictions on women's roles began to be eroded. Uh, and so now actually there are no restrictions. Women can hold any role, any military role. And you know laws have been changed and regulations have been changed to ensure that, that is, you know, there's a stable foundation for that to continue which is a very impressive thing for a society at war to do, because very often legislation will follow afterwards, sometimes generations afterwards. And so for all of that to happen so quickly, I think is, is quite extraordinary. So looking at the way that women have been integrated into the Ukrainian armed forces, you do tend to see them predominantly in certain kinds of supporting roles, which is typical of women in militaries around the world and over time, is you tend to find them concentrated certain kinds of supporting roles. Uh, you have a lot of women medics, in the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, that's where a lot of the, the women are. And they certainly are in and close to combat situations. Absolutely. You know, medics are needed in, in those circumstances. And so you have, you know, women because just because they're in a supporting role doesn't mean they're not exposed to danger, which is absolutely true. And I think we've also seen a shift in the way that the Ukrainian government thinks about and presents women in the military. For example, Zelensky now routinely talks about the men and women defenders of Ukraine using the male and female version of the, the word defenders. Whereas in the past, you know, they might have only talked about the, the male version of, of the word defenders. So there are these kinds of, of symbolic differences as well, changes, which I think are important to a lot of, of the women. Of course, it's not saying that Ukrainian society has totally transformed itself and that everybody thinks it's great that women are fighting in the war. Plenty of people think it's not a good thing, think that, you know, the military is not the place for women and women should be away on the home front. They should be safe. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a society very much in transition and, and ideas are changing. But we are seeing, I think, in some recent opinion polls in Ukraine, more and more people are accepting and approving of the idea of women being in the military. So there are signs that, that society's views are shifting a bit as, as this war goes on. Mm -hmm. And if we look at the Russian context, which seems to be quite different. So could you talk a bit about how you would characterize the role of women within Russia, within the military or during wartime? Yeah, absolutely. So it is it is fascinating because it is such a sharp contrast. And the whereas, you know, in Ukraine, Zelensky is in some ways sort of leading 
the idea that it's acceptable, it's it's normal for women to be part of, of a military effort. In Russia, Putin is absolutely heading in the wrong direction. So he is very much presenting, he and his officials are very much presenting the war as men's business. And women's roles in this war are to be the supporters. And so women are called upon, you know, the wives and the mothers, the mothers in particular are called upon to support their sons who go off to war and to give them moral support and to, you know, send them care packages and all these kinds of things. And there are gestures that are made by the Ministry of Defense in Russia, by the government, by Putin himself towards the mothers. You know, Putin back in November, I think, had this very well publicized meeting with mothers of, of mobilized soldiers where he was sitting at a you know, big table with the women and talking to them and so on. But it was very carefully stage managed. And so everything was was very carefully planned. It was even scripted and rehearsed in advance. And so the women are were there literally playing playing a part. And so this is the public view, this is public face, uh, this is the Kremlin's narrative, is that, you know, men go off to war and women support them. But in reality, what's happening, I think, is that women in Russia are expected to do an enormous amount of picking up the pieces. And so particularly, there are some societies, some communities where a lot of the, the, the local men have been mobilized and the women are left to, you know, look after the families, keep the communities going, find the money somehow, maybe take an extra job or take a job in the first place if they haven't been you know, employed outside the home. So there's a lot of pressure on the women to keep everything going, keep everything moving, but absolutely not to be acknowledged in this way. So it's really, really interesting. It's very highly gendered, the way that the war is depicted by Putin and other officials. And you definitely get the impression that there's no room for women in this war, except playing a very marginal supporting role off to the, the side somewhere. And it's interesting because back in the 1990s, in the early 2000s, actually, women were joining the Russian armed forces in reasonable numbers and made up a proportion uh, just over 10% at, at, the, at the peak kind of, of of their joining. But it became it was really a bit of a fluke that they were there at all, because it was in response to uh, changing economic circumstances in Russia, where joining the military actually was one of the few opportunities for women in some communities to get a job. Uh, and the Ministry of Defense didn't know what to do with them. It really didn't know what to do with these women. There was absolutely no effort to make any changes to legislation or policy or practice or anything. And the military in Russia was a very hostile place to women, which I think it still is. And so when, when circumstances changed in Russia, the supply of women pretty much dried up. And so you have very few women now. What's really interesting is they had this opportunity to draw upon a wider demographic to help to solve a personnel crisis. And they chose to look the other way because uh, women were not the ideal soldiers. They did not fit the image of what the Russian soldier should be in the eyes of the senior people in the Ministry of Defense, in the eyes of, of Putin's regime. You know, we're back to the very traditional, almost sort of World War II, 1950s kind of ideas about what men's and women's roles should be. Mm -hmm. So as someone who has been following both Ukraine and Russia, for a long time, how would you evaluate what we might be likely to see in terms of the trajectory of the war this year? I think we've got several themes and, and trajectories going on here simultaneously. So if we start with Russia, I think what we've seen is a real degradation of the Russians' ability to wage war in the sense of gaining militarily significant 
targets, achieving things which are militarily important, gaining significant ground, holding significant ground. We saw a, an effort just over a year ago to try and take the, the capital city and try and take the control of the whole country, which completely failed. And ever since then, it's been a matter of trying to sort of shift those strategies and tactics, trying to recover something from this real debacle of, of a war. And in the process, of course, Russia has lost an enormous number of soldiers. It's lost a lot of its most senior and experienced soldiers and commanders. It's lost a lot of capacity in that sense, which is difficult to replace quickly. So even though they've gone on this partial mobilization, bringing in hundreds of thousands of, of new troops, what they haven't been able to replace quickly is this depth of experience and knowledge. And so who is leading these people? Who is training these people? You know, this is where the, the gaps are really apparent. And of course, most, the vast majority of these newly mobilized are people who either have no military experience or their military experience was a long time ago. So if you look at the photographs of the newly mobilized, you will see a lot of men uh, in their 40s and 50s. And, you know, typically that is not what you think of as a fighting army, you know, you typically you think of much younger men making up the bulk of the army. And it's really clear that Russia is struggling, even though they have a large population, because the start of, of this mass invasion and the announcement of the September mobilization created huge waves of people leaving the country. And the vast majority of those people, especially after September, were young men. And some of the most well-educated, some of the most, you know, entrepreneurial, forward-looking, uh, energetic young men ha have left, and many of them may never come back. So at a stroke, you know, Russia has lost a huge resource, both for its war effort, but also for its economy, for its future. So I think what we're probably going to see in the coming months is going to be more of the same in the sense that Russia will put more numbers of troops into the field. This is what they can do. This is a traditional thing that the Russians have done in wars, you know, going back hundreds of years. They put large numbers of people into the field. The question of what they're able to do with those numbers is a kind of an open one, because the Ukrainians, which have a, a smaller force, have been forced to be more, more innovative, shall we say, to be more strategic and more tactical and, and cleverer in the way that they use the, the forces that they have. And of course, they've been enjoying the advantage of being trained by, by NATO countries, really almost since the, the beginning of, of the war in 2014. There's been some cooperation with NATO countries, there's been training, there's been you know various joint kinds of activities. And so they've really, uh, the Ukrainians have really been able to benefit from thinking differently thinking very differently from their, their the Soviet origins of the Ukrainian armed forces, which are now quite a long time ago. A lot of things have happened since then. And the Ukrainians have moved quite a, a long way away from those Soviet origins, whereas the Russians seem to be embracing them and really going back to them and thinking about this as a conflict, which is like the rerun of the Second World War in lots of different ways and the way that it's fought and the way that it's thought about, talked about and so on. And so we're going to see this, I think we're going to see an increasing continuation of what we have seen before, which is two different ways of fighting war, two different ways of thinking about war. But while the Ukrainians are getting you know, sort of fresh supplies of, of equipment and more and more advanced equipment and weaponry from the West, Russia is definitely struggling. It's struggling with capacity in terms of, of hum, human resources, and it's struggling with capacity in terms of, of equipment, even though it's having to you know, sort of go into its Cold War stores and, and find, find stuff to, to bring out. And I guess the final thing I would say is that you've got a real difference in motivation and morale on in the two sides, because the Ukrainians, you know, they're fighting to defend their own country. They're fighting against an aggressive evading force, and they have everything to gain from a victory and everything to lose from a defeat. Uh, and, the, and the revelations of what 
has happened to uh, Ukrainian civilians and POWs under Russian control has been horrific. And it really just spurs the Ukrainians on to be even more determined not to leave any of their people to, to suffer in this way. The Russians, on the other hand, are fighting in a country which is not their own, even though they're told continuously that this is a war of, of existential survival for Russia. It's still more difficult to believe when they're when they're, they've they have crossed the border, they have invaded. And of course, Everything about the, the Russian armed forces is permeated with the same problems that affect the rest of, of Russian politics, which is corruption, endemic corruption. And so some of the problems that Russia has had in the war have been a direct result of corrupt practices and cronyism and favors being exchanged and people being getting lucrative defense contracts and then not delivering the goods uh, when the time has come. And, and those are features of Putin's political system. And they're not going to change anytime soon. It's not something which can be easily cleaned up and fixed. Uh, these are long-term issues, structural problems, and Putin shows no sign of being interested in, in changing them. And so I think these are the reasons why I'm seeing, you know, Russian abilities to wage the war declining, Ukraine's abilities to wage the war increasing. There are a lot of moving parts to this conflict, obviously, as, as there always are in war. And a crucial part, of course, is going to be how other states, other societies continue to respond. Will uh, international support for Ukraine hold up? Will it continue to be as strong as it has been? Will it fall apart at some point, short of a Ukrainian victory? That's a big question. That's one that we don't know the answer to. Will Russia manage to rally some other countries to its support to a greater extent than it has? And of course, there's a lot of speculation right now about China, what China will do. So there are still a lot of big questions up in the air. But I think those are the general trends that I'm seeing. So I'm expecting to see the war continue, I'm, I'm sorry to say, certainly uh, for the coming months, uh, maybe even throughout the year, really depending on the precise scope and, and speed of, of change uh, in terms of these different factors that I've mentioned. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. This has been a really interesting discussion and I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for listening and thanks to Gonka Varol for our theme music.